0: Welcome to the Podcast of Ideas. I'm Rob Lyons. In this edition, I talked to Tiffany Jenkins about why there was so much fuss about the reburial of King Richard III. Claire Fox talks about how the Institute will be trying to breathe some life into the election campaign. And economist Vicky Price talks about her new book on economics for voters and why we need more roads. But first, the news. And we've gathered together a few members of the Institute of Ideas team to talk about stories that have caught their attention. And the first up is Adam Rawcliffe. Adam, what do you want to talk about?
1: Uh, So in quite niche news this week, uh, a lead table published by the Royal Society for Public Health named Preston, which is incidentally my hometown, as the unhealthiest high street in Britain. Top 10 was round out with similar cities and towns from the north of England and Midlands. Shrewsbury finished top of the table and Ayr, surprisingly finished second with a story breaking in january with a woman trying to sell her baby on the high street so that kind of points to my thoughts about this study i was quite angry when i first heard just because i took it as an insult to proud preston but the more worrying concerns raised uh, by the study which i think is quite frankly as useful as a chocolate teapot The study's just another attempt by the public health lobby to attack the much demonised recession, profiting a newfound scourge of the poor, the payday lenders, bookies and tanning shops. The incredibly loose, unhealthy classification without any justification beyond being deemed potentially damaging to the public health reeks of the poor hate and moralism of they're all stupid fat addicts up in the north. Pubs and restaurants were deemed healthy features, which I personally agree with, but barely attest to the scientific integrity of the study. All the Royal Society for Public Health is doing is passing moral judgment on who is healthy and good and who is unhealthy and bad. On the other hand, a more telling statistic, the obesity rating in our number one high street, Shrewsbury, is 25.9% dirty and healthy preston it is 20.8 percent as peter crass from the association of british bookmakers said the majority of our shops have been in the same location for over 20 years and as with any other retailer we open because there are customers for our products so i really think it's as simple as that And while we're on the topic of public health, there's another story that broke
0: uh, this week. There was a shock and horror over the news of a new survey which suggested that one in five teenagers had tried or bought e-cigarettes. The implication was that e-cigarettes are a gateway drug. And one of the researchers involved in this study, Professor Mark Bellis, said that e-cigs were providing a concentrated form of a highly addictive substance with known problems associated with it. And we need to be very cautious about that and how we protect our young people. The problem is that these alarmist conclusions don't fit with the broader pattern of e-cig use among young people. Even this survey shows that hardly any kids who have never smoked have used e-cigs. Isn't it a good thing that kids who do smoke are already trying a much less harmful alternative? And merely trying e-cigs is a long way from saying that you know someone's a regular user of them. Nevertheless, the researchers claim that e-cigs are the alco-pops of the nicotine world and needed tougher controls... Personally, I think the researchers' conclusions here reflect their crusading, ban-happy outlook rather than anything to do with the real threat from e-cigs, which seems to be, in fact, pretty low. Dave Baden, what have you got to to offer? Well, like most people in Europe and around the world this week,
2: I've been particularly struck by the awful events in France after Germanwings flight 9525 crashed uh, with a tragic loss of 150 people. And then the absolutely horrifying revelation that it was seemingly caused by a deliberate act of the co-pilot, Andreas Lubitz. Now, while of course we still don't know very much for certain about Lubitz and his role in the crash, I think the reaction to the revelations about his mental health have been very striking. In particular, media have been criticised in focusing on Lubitz as a madman, and thereby further adding to the stigmatisation and demonisation of mental illness in society. As several commentators have claimed this week, Given one in four of us will experience mental health issues at some point in our lives, why should we look to this as an obvious explanation for Lubitz's act in crashing a plane and killing 150 people? Now, while some of that is perfectly well intentioned, especially when we know so very little about it, I think it's also patronising and misguided. I think Lubitz's state of mind at the time of the crash is obviously relevant to this case, and it is appropriate that we ask serious questions about the procedures that can allow such an incident to occur. I think it's also insulting to the public to suggest they cannot draw a distinction between the vast majority of those suffering serious mental illness, who mostly pose a risk only to themselves, if anyone, and the seemingly monstrous actions of Lubitz. In fact, if anyone draws a false comparison between the two, it is those campaigners who bandy about the one-in-four statistics which bundles together those people suffering fairly everyday normal forms of depression or or grief or other factors with those who suffer the kind of serious psychiatric illnesses who are most in need of society's care and support. I think it's perfectly correct in the wake of such a tragedy that we should not jump to knee-jerk conclusions or seek easy answers to the problems. Yet while we may never know the full reasons for why so many people died that day, we should be free to ask difficult questions and debate these questions openly for all of our sakes.
0: Thanks, Dave. And finally, Ross and what story have you picked upon?
3: Well, one story that caught my eye was the frenzied reaction to Indiana's introduction of a religious freedom bill, which would prevent people from legally being compelled to do things which ran contrary to their religious beliefs. The law follows legislation signed into federal law by Bill Clinton in 1993, and is already on the books in 19 other states. These laws were themselves reinforcing the US Constitution, which states that no laws shall be made prohibiting the free exercise of religion. However, as soon as the law was signed by the governor of Indiana, it was immediately redubbed the Gay Discrimination Law by online activists because it might allow people to refuse to provide goods and services to things like gay weddings if such ceremonies were against their religious beliefs. The Twitter storm it started became massive, with the hashtag BoycottIndiana trending at number one within hours of the law being signed, with many commentators saying the bill represented a new kind of segregation. Celebrities and corporations were tripping over themselves to come out against the bill, with condemnations and threats of boycotts coming from the heads of major corporations like Apple and Twitter, while in the political sphere, the mayors of San Francisco and Seattle, as well as the governor of Washington state, all broke off relations with Indiana and banned official visits there. So, apart from the fact that it's absurd to say that allowing religious people to act according to their conscience is akin to segregation, the most troubling thing about the reaction to the Religious Freedom Bill is that it also reflects a growing impulse to forego debate and discussion in favour of boycotts to enforce new orthodoxies.
0: Okay, thanks very much, Rossa. And that was the news. Last Thursday the 26th of March the remains of Richard III the last of the Plantagenet kings were reinterred with much pomp and ceremony at Leicester Cathedral Richard's body had been found in a car park on the former site of Greyfriars Friary Church in the city in 2012 and the identity was confirmed in 2013 after analysis of both the skeleton and of DNA taken from it thousands of people attended the reinterment and the reburial has provoked a lively discussion about Richard's place in history Why has the discovery of his bones and their re-internment attracted so much interest? To discuss this and other recent issues around archaeological artefacts, I'm joined via Skype by Tiffany Jenkins, Associate Fellow at the Institute of Ideas and author of both Contesting Human Remains in Museum Collections, The Crisis of Cultural Authority, and Keeping Their Marbles, How Treasures of the Past Ended Up in Museums and Why They Should Stay, which will be published next year by Oxford University Press. So, Tiffany... Why are we seeing so much excitement over the burial of Richard III? What is it all about?
4: Well, I must admit, I did spend my Thursday morning glued to the television, Channel 4 News, watching the funeral of a probable dead king from 300 years ago. But I don't think it's got very much to do with him. Certainly, inconsistent rituals abound. Helen Damnation weren't mentioned in a service which took a few hours rather than a few days. So no one's really mourning him. Instead, this crazy pageant, I think, is the result of a number of different interests and circumstances. So a couple of groups such as the Richard III Society want to rehabilitate him, but also Leicester University who want to prove the value of academic research and archaeology. And you add to those those two groups two things. One is that, I mean, this is quite a fun discovery. It may not add much to history. It doesn't tell us anything we don't really know. But it is quite good fun that you find a king in a car park in Leicester. (laughs) You can't underestimate that. And I think that sort of happens in something of a broader vacuum. So we don't know who to venerate today or celebrate and anything that has a semblance of popular interest. And I think the youth will kind of jump onto it at little cost to themselves. So you have, you know, Chris Grayling at the funeral, which is a bit bizarre. They look a bit ridiculous, but in a way, they're kind of chasing something that they think is more interesting, some kind of interest in history. But all of that has very little to do with Richard III and the man so vividly described by Shakespeare as, you know, rudely stamped, deformed and spit out from his mother's womb.
0: So they're jumping on the time team demographic now for some bit of popular support, which is an interesting one. And There has been a, quite a bit of discussion about old bones in general lately. Um, why is, what's that all about?
4: Well, there's always been an interest in old bones. So although... They're central to rituals of mourning. They're also used often in political battles throughout history. If you think of recent developments in Libya, when Gaddafi was was killed, his body was paraded through the streets. If you look over at Russia, Lenin is still lying there, um, as he has been in a glass box since 1924. So human remains have this kind of symbolic potential. They can be used, words put in their mouths, really, by the living, because they're connected with the sacred, but actually they have no particular meaning. And the more detached they are from a named individual, such as Richard III, the more they can be manipulated. But, I mean, you're right. It's it's not just that it's always been the case. There is something going on right now. I think all sorts of bones are being reinterred and kind of searched for Cervantes, the Mona Lisa. You see bones and bodies in CSI and across popular culture. And They do not lie, is what we're told in British Cornwall novels. And I think the last 20 or 30 years, there's been an increased focus culturally and socially on the body, a kind of... And dead bodies, actually, a kind of morbid fascination, whether it's um, Gunther Hagen's or or all sorts of other bodies and bones that we see. And I think perhaps what's happened is that with broader sources of meaning, whether it's, uh, it's secularization and depoliticization, the body has become more important to us, really as a kind of not just who we are, but what we are. Just think about Angelina Jolie. Now, she's not dead but we know a great deal about the bodily insides of this very beautiful actress and it serves I think as a kind of memento more to tell us that we are we are mortal we are flesh and we decay and in that respect there's something quite ugly about it.
0: There does seem to be this very specific thing about what we do with remains so there was this controversy over Richard, in particular, about where he should be buried, and yeah, there was a court battle over whether they should be allowed to bury him in Leicester or whether it should be York Minster or Westminster. More broadly, there just seems to be this kind of real anxiety about not burying remains, about remains in museums, about whether they should be rightfully studied. I mean, what's happened there? Why has that become sort of such a focus for kind of you know, identity politics, I suppose?
4: Well, they do have symbolic potential. So you have these different interest groups wanting to make various points using human remains to kind of give them a kind of frisson. It's kind of weaponizing their different arguments. In relation to museums, there have been fights over the ownership of human remains in museum collections, such as the Natural History Museum, the British Museum, across America, across Britain, and the rest of Europe, really since the 1970s. And Two things kind of happened there. The identity movements started to move away from fights for material equality, for land ownership, and towards more cultural claims. And at the same time, those within the museum profession were were increasingly unsure as to what the point of a museum was. And you see, in museums, actually, human remains are incredibly important. They uh, tell us about the unique evidence. It tells us about evolution, patterns of migration, lifestyle and mortuary rituals. And they kind of came symbolic of science and they were returned to community groups as a way of saying sorry for the ills of science for colonization for the impact of settler society and in the process unique material has been destroyed and you know, some of these remains are tens of thousands of years old so they're not your great grandma they're incredibly important for us understanding our shared history and it's actually quite sad and destructive and of course doesn't particularly improve the lives of community groups in, in Australia and ab- Aboriginal lives. So the political use of bones in this instance can have quite negative and serious consequences. One reason why I think the archaeological community and Leicester University were so keen to investigate Richard III was because it was kind of a way of saying, look, the research on these bones is really important. And they were kind of responding, I think, to those, those battle over the bones in museums and really over who owns knowledge
0: taking a a step back again because this isn't the only if you like archaeological discussion that's been going on at the moment because in iraq at the moment we're seeing islamic State destroying very important objects and archaeological sites what's going on there what what is driving them to do that and and why does it matter because I i suppose a lot of people will say in you know in the face of what isis gets up to in terms of you know these horrible executions that this should become a distant second in terms of our priorities. But it's pretty important what's going on there.
4: I thought it was horrendous. Um, I think it's because we're not just bodies, you know, relating it back to the human remains stuff. We are people with history and culture. So we harm humanity when we destroy its cultural artefacts and we harm it for the people in Iraq as well as for us. And added to that is what they are destroying – these are the ancient cities of the Assyrian Empire. They go back centuries. They're some of our greatest and oldest archaeological and cultural treasures. So it's 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 just awful.
0: Why are the, why are they doing it? That's it's inexplicable, and it's not just them either. We've seen similar things in Timbuktu in, in recent years, and also going slightly further back, the Taliban destroying those Buddhist statues in Afghanistan. Why do these groups? Do that? I mean, is it just pure nihilism, or is there some kind of rationale to it?
4: Well, it hits out at what we think is important: history, cultural treasures. I think it's far more to do with that than it is to do with religion. It's certainly propaganda. So a lot of these things that were destroyed—I mean, some of them were were fakes; they weren't real, or they were replicas, and they're, they're done. It's done for the camera. Mm-hmm. It's done to yeah. kind of wound us. Um, it's propaganda, and it's it's, it's actually you know they, they'll cut off the head of a person and they'll cut off the head of a statue as a way of getting at us.
0: And how does that compare with iconoclasm in the past? For you know, for example, in the Protestant Reformation.
4: I'm not. I'm not sure that this is iconoclasm really. I, I mean, you're right in that when this, these events did take place, quite a lot of people pointed out that uh, specifically under the Protestant Reformation, you had. The destruction of images, but that was to stop the traditional practice of worshipping images as sources of mediators of divine power. There was a rationale for it, even if you know we we may be the kind of culturally poorer for it. But the rationale was that so worshippers would focus on the abstract message of a textually transmitted faith. You know, they were they were changing society, I and mean, that's quite different, I think to what's happening now it doesn't seem to be religious at all or or certainly not much in that you know Muslims have been perfectly they have worshipped those artifacts as culture for centuries so it's not about stopping the local population from worshipping Um, it's about hurting those of us who value history and paradoxically modernity because it's really with modernity that we began to value the past in particular ways and preserve it And, and we were able to separate it from its original meaning.
0: So is there anything we can do about what's going on over there?
4: Well, I mean, you can't separate it, sadly, from a political battle with ISIS. After the looting in Iraq that took place in the second Gulf War, there were discussions about having some sort of international cultural protection body. But the problem with that, obviously, is that you override state sovereignty and you have these kind of actors going into other people's countries in a way that is probably dubious. As to whether it kind of strengthens the case for museums, well... Boris Johnson certainly argued that that's why the Assyrian antiquities in the British Museum should have been taken by Layard in the nineteenth century. But I, I'm not entirely convinced by that. I'm very happy that they're there. Um, I think that's a very good place for them. I don't think they should be returned. But I think the case for museums has to be a little bit bigger than it that they should be there because otherwise the terrorists will get them. What we have to do, I think, is simply value our shared history and culture, and actually. That's not something we do very well here in the West. We have a pretty kind of destructive and suspicious attitude towards the past nowadays, and perhaps we would do well to value it a little bit more ourselves as we watch ISIS destroying it.
0: All very interesting stuff. Thank you very much for your time, Tiffany Jenkins. Pleasure. On Monday, the Prime Minister and Tory party leader David Cameron went to Buckingham Palace to ask the Queen to dissolve Parliament. And with that, the election campaign got underway, with 37 days in which the parties can try to inspire us to vote for them. Unfortunately, it would seem that inspiration will be in short supply, with little discussion of the big ideas needed for Britain in the next five years. Yet there is surely an appetite to have those discussions, and there's nothing we like more at the Institute of Ideas than a debate, as long as it's not one of those interminable leaders' debates with predictable questions and reconstituted replies. So to talk about what we're doing and about the election campaign more broadly, I'm joined by Claire Fox, Director of the Institute. Claire, are you looking forward to the campaign?
5: I'm very much a political geek. I should therefore... Be prepared to say that I'm really excited about the campaign because this is the time when democracy really comes to the fore and we get an opportunity to debate all the big issues in society and take control of our own future and determine who's going to you know, run society. But I'm not really, because we're all familiar with the fact that the campaign's already started and as yet there's been very little to give one a sense of real political discussion going on from any of the political parties. It's just that it's very difficult because I don't want to come over with a kind of war-weary kind of, oh, they're all the same. I don't want to imply that I've kind of got the same kind of cynicism as the likes of Russell Brand or whatever, that, you know, all politicians are liars and we don't trust them. But it is dispiriting when what passes for political debate is the swapping of soundbites.
0: In many ways, it's a really unpredictable election as well. I mean, we should be excited just... Because the outcome is so uncertain. Because not only do we have, you know, the usual suspects, we you know have the you know the SNP is going to play a big role. So will UKIP and the Greens. Isn't this a welcome end to two or maybe three party politics?
5: Well, I I do think actually anything that shakes things up is a good thing. Sadly, I feel that the emergence of the SNP as a political force is the opposite of shaking things up, but is actually like the clamping down of debate because, you know. What strikes me about what's happening in Scotland is something that passed for a campaign for freedom in Scotland is being led by the most liberal party in the world. So I, who am not a great fan of the Labour Party, am desperately hoping that they might actually not do as badly as was predicted in Scotland. And I can't bear the thought of a kind of SNP uh, lording it over. I don't mean lording it over us here in London. I mean lording it over people in Scotland. Just generally having a kind of moral high ground politically, precisely because there's so little that's radical about their agenda, so little that's progressive. So that's a bit depressing, and it's it's actually not that unpredictable, is it? Because we know they're going to, you know, romp home in Scotland, and it's actually a sign of a a real inability to kind of have new politics. Because really, they're kind of old Labour combined with a kind of conservative nationalism and in liberalism, they don't feel very new and refreshing. I'm a great critic of environmentalism, but I quite like the idea that the Greens might shake things up a bit. I mean, it's hard to imagine it, but, you know, I don't mind that. I've enjoyed a few of their uh, stunts and so on. I think that Natalie Bennett got a hard time, but, you know, even though it's a ridiculous way of having an election campaign, the fact that the Labour Party brought out a immigration controls mug and they brought out a no immigration controls mug. I mean, it's about as exciting as it gets, really, but at least there's a bit of an argument. UKIP are the most interesting prospects. I mean, they certainly represent a more genuine democratic voice, I think, in the elections. And like most of us who are just fed up the huge disdain and contempt and patronage that comes from the main parties to have UKIP kind of stir things up a bit, regardless actually of what their your anyone's views are on Europe, although I think they've got a point on its anti democratic nature. I disagree with them on immigration, but they have been prepared to say some things which needed to be said in terms of getting a genuine debate going. And there's something quite refreshing about Farage looking you in the eye and not being right on and, you know, saying it as it is, as it were. So that's kind of interesting, but they look like they might have slightly run out of steam, I'm not sure. The bizarre bit is, though, it should be a bit exciting that things are up for grabs, it's never been closer. And yet, actually, it just doesn't feel like an exciting election. a bit of a Westminster excitement about the closeness of it. I think there is a sense in which we all feel that everyone is too close together politically for that closeness to make much difference.
0: Yeah, I mean, it really does feel like it's like watching an election campaign taking place in another country. It's it's like watching the you know, the U.S. presidential election or something. It's it's like it's 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 interesting, sort of, but it, it's like it doesn't really kind of impact upon you.
5: I just I, I don't I just feel as though nothing in the debates that one hears describes any of our real lives i mean any of our lived experiences so you've described it as another country it feels just like an alien political elite that haven't got a clue what the kind of key issues are I, i've it's really struck me in relation to the labor party you know and their kind of attempt at some kind of rebuilding some links or roots with with their original working class which is the only thing that they think about ordinary people is is through the prism of poverty, so they think everybody it 's all about being poor or not, right, and actually, there is more to politics than just how much money you 've got, how much tax you spend or or even kind of like cuts and austerity. You know people want a grown up discussion about where Britain is going and who 's taking them there not a and you know I, you know Andrew Neil did a very good job of of interrogating yes. Lucy Powell. One of the things that really struck me was that Lucy Powell, I mean, she was answering and O'Neill was saying she wasn't answering adequately enough. And effectively, what her reply was, was stop bullying me. I know about these media bullying tactics. And you just get a sense in which these people think that this election campaign is a PR opportunity for them rather than a being held to account opportunity. And ultimately, what she would not concede was that we face difficult challenges as a country and that they haven't got a clue what to do about them, or they certainly don't treat us as grown up enough to acknowledge that maybe there are difficult problems to confront us instead of just the most narrow, silly type of Tory bashing. So what should be the big issues in this campaign, do you think? Well, I definitely think the economy is a perfectly legitimate discussion. I think it's ironic that actually none of the political parties are particularly honest about the absolute problems of the uh, the deficit it's interesting that there isn't a real discussion about how to allow the uk to have a new industrial revolution which is what it needs Uh, how to have economic growth how to confront the kind of sluggishness of productivity apart from saying oh there's been like no productivity increase under the tories but it's like yes and what why is there not more discussion about the need to build on the green belt, the need for huge infrastructural projects, you know, uh, third runways, wherever they are, uh, Heathrow, you know, big sort of vision like that. So that's kind of an economy thing. I, I think that there should be a, a much more serious discussion about Uh, The UK's relationship with Europe, in case instead of everybody being terrorised and 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 kind of that just being a kind of political football, because I think the lack of democratic engagement in Europe is problematic. I think that one of the uh, big issues I'd like to have, but none of the parties will do. Let's be honest, because they're all the people who were chipping away at it, is to discuss freedom. I mean, we just live in a less free society now. Every day, some freedom is chipped away at. You know, we do not have open free speech. Post Charlie Hebdo, everybody said, you know, just sweet Charlie. But these days, you just feel that anything you say might be closed down. And that's a real palpable thing that people do talk about all over the place. People understand that there's a walking on eggshells. The closest of anyone who gets it is actually UKIP because they're the ones who are always being done under the you-can't-say-that tyranny. So I actually think a, a genuine grown-up discussion about freedom... What a free society might look like would be quite a useful thing to discuss. And one of my bugbears at the moment is the increasing nihilism amongst new generations who do not appear to have any sense of Courage about the future. There's a kind of lot of intergenerational moaning about it's all your fault we can't buy a house. Uh, I mean, you know, I've done a lot of talks in six forms. There's kind of feminist societies going everywhere and everywhere, and all they seem to do is say ban everything. Student unions seem to be completely preoccupied with closing down discussion the demand for safe safety amongst young people the reason i refer to all that is we've also got this problem which is that an awful lot of western youth are joining isis for example and we don't appear to want to discuss it so how do we confront that apart from anti-terror legislation which guess what closes everything down and goes around banning things in universities but actually that's a serious problem new generations of young people it's not even just that they won't Maybe consider voting, but that actually a more nihilistic, pessimistic cloud is hanging over them and us as a
4: consequence.
0: So, what is the Institute doing during the election campaign to sort of raise some of these issues?
5: Well, one of the things that we wanted to consider was, in a way, get a snapshot of the state of the nation. It's quite interesting that the only way that state of the nation uh, snapshots are. A happened during the election campaign is a competition amongst polling organizations um a worm which is where they kind of watch what the audience responds to the formal election debates by saying which way the worm goes Mm -hmm. i heard a discussion this morning on the radio about what keywords were being used most on twitter in relation to different people are being i mean we're treated with a certain anthropology so um as as voters so we do actually think that i think at the institute of ideas it's worth trying to understand the world that's going on so we're we're doing a series of state of the nation debates that's that's one thing just to try and get a grasp of why young people are on voting a genuinely honest discussion Which we've got on the economy, which is exactly where we are and where we should go uh, along the lines maybe I discussed earlier, and discussions on what's happening in education, where we should go, young people and the vote, and so on, a range of things like that. We actually then recognise that we're just trying to get a feel for what people are discussing and debating and have those as public debates, uh, not hustings, and then we want to. Follow that up because we recognise not much will be resolved quite on May the 6th, 7th. So we want to come back to a lot of these issues. And we've got a strand of debates at the City of London Festival uh, this year, which is at the end of June and July, where we can actually really kind of get to grips with right the post-election mood and state of the nation. Right.
0: Excellent stuff. So um, we've also got an, an online debate as well, which is carrying on from that, f- that freedom issue, which is we're asking people to say which law they'd repeal. So, for example, we've got some contributions in on, for example, the Climate Change Act, on the DAF visa rules around visiting artists, decriminalising abortion and scrapping the Human Rights Act and a lot more. So that, So, if you want to find out about any of that stuff, please go to instituteofideas.com forward slash state of the nation and you'll find all the details about the events coming up and the online debate as well. But for now, thank you very much, Claire Fox. Thank you on the 28th of april the institute of ideas economy forum is holding a public debate called what next for the uk economy featuring a stellar panel of economists one of which is vicky price the author of a new book it's the economy stupid economics for voters and i'm very happy that vicky has joined us here in the institute of ideas office to talk about the book and about the election debate about the economy more generally so how did this book ab- Come about? Why did you write it?
6: Well, I was a government economist for a while after I had spent quite some time in the private sector, and one of the things that I was responsible for as joint head of the government economic service was to ensure that policies were based on evidence. It's what we really want to uh, to do, which is basically evidence based policy, rather than uh, what often is the case, which is policy based evidence. In other words, politicians will come with a fixed idea of what they want done. Won't shift from it, and expect other civil servants to come up with the reason why their idea is a good one. And of course, that's not really the way it should be. It should certainly be the other way around. You have to look at cost benefit. Is any um, sort of proposal made either in the manifesto or uh, coming after a government is elected, like for example, what has been happening in the NHS? Uh, does it make sense? Does it stuck up? Are the benefits that we're likely to be getting out of this policy? Higher than the costs, it may still be a good idea uh, for other reasons, but it won't be for an economic reason if that's the case. Or at least we need to suggest to the ministers that they should change things around and and make it work. and And that's really the motivation behind the book is to show that all those political pronouncements that are being made, everything that's being discussed now in the pre-election debate, needs to be looked at by the voters in that way. Does it make sense? Are we? going to be worse off because of this rather than better off and our alternatives perhaps offered by a different party uh, a better way forward.
0: Yeah, I mean it's written in a very straightforward style so it is very much aimed at voters from that and the other thing that's that's interesting about it is that although it's called It's the Economy Stupid it actually ranges over such a, a broad area of different issues from the NHS to discrimination to the environment uh, but looks at them through the lens of economics. So why do you think an economist's viewpoint on these issues is so useful?
6: Well, again, the really important thing is whether some of the things that are happening around us, let's say it's, it's the environmental changes that are witnessed every day, whether tackling them or not tackling them would have implications which are wider than the things that might be affecting that particular narrow area in itself. So, so obviously, uh, you know, when you're driving a car, emissions have an impact on everyone around you. So there are externalities. And the way any government should be interfering in this is to look at whether there is a market failure. In other words, that the market doesn't price it properly, doesn't price the wider impact of those policies or whatever is happening around us in a way that shows clearly whether there is there a need for the government to step in via the pricing things properly to take account of the wider issues or by doing something different completely it may not have to do with pricing. It may just have to do with well, sometimes even rationing, restricting regulation uh, that may get you to the right, the same point. So all these issues matter. So, for example, diversity. Uh, we have a section there on women and perhaps more diverse boards. I mean, the interesting thing is that the economy could be doing so much better overall and productivity if women were contributing to the economy the way they should do, if we had more diverse boards which understood what the customer wants to see you know being provided to them by a particular company all that uh means that if we don't tackle it properly we're losing out as an economy we're losing out in terms of incomes that could be distributed to the population and therefore they need to be looked at again under that light which is the economic light other benefits of intervention if you like greater than the costs of not doing anything
0: the UK economy seems to be growing again. Unemployment is falling and uh, so is inflation, which was something of a cause for of, of concern for some people. But by a lot of traditional measures, the UK seems to be now recovering better than many of its neighbours after a slow start. So is the UK this comeback country, as George Osborne claims? But to what extent is there more work to do? For example, in the news, there seems to be quite a bit of discussion about productivity. Now it seems to be becoming an issue that's reached public consciousness. So so what is where are we at with the UK economy at the moment?
6: There are a number of, of different areas we can look at. First of all, uh, whether the claim, for example, that we've really done amazingly well on the fiscal consolidation front, in other words, sort of reducing the deficit, are, are true, which of course they are up to a point. We've halved it since uh, the beginning of the coalition period, but it's still not where it was supposed to be if we were to believe anything that the manifesto said and what the the emergency budget and the comprehensive spending review that followed the coalition government said, which is that by this time, this stage in the cycle, we should have eliminated both cyclical and structural deficits. So, well, we're not there at all. Uh, The debt continues to go up. So on that basis, you'd say that that is a failure. From an economic viewpoint, however, you'd say, actually, that's rather good news. Um, There's no point in attacking them for this. You may attack them because they claim to have been successful, but in reality... If uh, Osborne hadn't changed his policies in 2012, when the economy was really looking like it was doing very badly, uh, we wouldn't be in the position where we are now, which is growth. And of course, electorally, it's uh, disastrous to go to the polls with uh, an economy that's collapsing. So, it's great to have growth, and it's great to have jobs. So that's a plus. On the negative side, there is the issue of what types of jobs do we have? Do they lead to greater pro- productivity in the economy and sustainable growth? And the answer is probably you know with difficulty because there's been this shift we moved away from high productivity areas to quite low service areas which traditionally have very low productivity Uh, many people are working below their skill levels uh, a huge increase in part-time jobs and a huge increase in the self-employed who of course although it sounds good in reality have seen their real average incomes decline by 22 percent since the Beginning of the recession, and that's not good news, and they're not very productive. So, unless we're able to return to a pattern of job creation which is in areas which encourages high productivity and encourages also some investment to come, then I think we will be looking with concern as to where the economy may be going in the future.
0: So, what should the next government be doing then?
6: It should look at that very, very carefully. Think about industrial policy in a serious way. There is no serious, from any party that I've seen so far, long-term productivity plan there isn't anything that is seriously looking at at regions people talk about a northern powerhouse without any plans really on on how to get there infrastructure spending which was cut back very significantly is coming back but as we say in the book some of the areas of proposed spending make no sense hs2 for example the cost benefit doesn't justify it you should really look at alternatives which are smaller city linking projects that work and and frankly the thing that works best, it is a horrible thing to have to admit to, particularly if you're concerned about the environment, is roads You know, build more roads, uh, people can move around better than they can otherwise, cuts down time even though of course many more people then start to drive but nevertheless it is actually in terms of the return to the economy quite by far the best way to
0: spend your money just make sure there's more electric cars on them, I guess. Well, you could do it that way, yes. <laughs> so, uh, finally, um, obviously we can't talk about the UK in isolation. I know that Britain is an island, but in economic terms it isn't. We're going to be heavily influenced by what happens in Europe over the next few years. Your previous book was called economics, So what do you think about the EU's policies towards Greece? Do you think the euro is going to survive? I mean, what do you think is the outlook for Europe more generally?
6: I'm very worried about Europe. I'm not only worried about what the UK might do. If there is a referendum, we might end up for whatever reason. These things could sort of all work the wrong way. Vote to leave, which um, will be a huge mistake. I can only hope that by then the Eurozone, whenever the referendum might be, depending on the election results, of course, the Eurozone recovers because if it does, then we will feel considerably happier being part of this greater Europe. There are so many jobs which are dependent on our continued relationship with Europe. I think we've estimated up to four million jobs are linked to it. doesn't mean they're all going to go, but that is a serious problem. On Greece, and one of the reasons why the UK is looking at Europe with such uh, concern, uh, on Greece I think the Europeans have got it all wrong. There should never have been the type of austerity imposed on Greece that there was. To see a country which is you know, a member of your group, with which you trade all the time and where people are moving freely around, sees GDP collapse by 25%. It's not a joke. I think any other country would have had a revolution by now. You know, Their politicians would have been lynched publicly. Greece has voted for a government that wants a bit of change. The reality is the figures are large in terms of the debt that Greece has got, but quite small in terms of what it requires to just keep on funding that debt of on a yearly basis. And it would have been very, very easy for the Europeans to have uh, accepted what the Greeks were saying, more or less, and then just help them get there rather than have these prolonged negotiations. What worries me about Greece is that by the time any agreement is reached, the Greek economy will have collapsed. It's already declining very substantially after improving quite considerably in the last year. This political crisis and the economic not-meeting-of-minds, if you like, that is going on right now is uh, suicidal on both sides.
0: Well, it's The Economy Stupid. Economics for Voters is out now, as is Greekonomics. And thank you very much for your time, Vicky Price. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Podcast of Ideas. To find out more about our podcasts and to subscribe to them, visit instituteofideas.com forward slash podcast.